This is an ABC podcast. Early childhood educators in regional Australia say their industry is in crisis because of a mass exodus of staff. There are there is other industries that are unqualified for and earn more than what I do, like factory work, like barista work, like hospitality. It's a shame that I have to think about leaving in order to earn more, but then that doesn't fit the crisis that is in the early childhood sector. And Facebook reverses its decision to ban the Tasmanian hemp industry from advertising on its platform. It's a plant that is used by humans to make food, for fibre. It's sold in the supermarkets. People eat it in their smoothies and their muesli. They build houses out of it. They wear T-shirts made out of hemp. It's clearly not a drug product. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country. A year after the catastrophic floods in Lismore in New South Wales, the first offers for home buybacks are underway. It's welcome news for people like Donna Walker, who live along the river. Since the floods, her family have been living in a rental. So a year ago, uh, before the flood, I was looking at you know, a future of living here forever. Uh, bringing the grandkids back um, or, you know, extended family, you know, being able to call this home forever. So within um, a night, we've, we, the world changed for myself and family, but also everybody else, you know, that's in our, our situation. So um, we now live out of here um, in a rental and we're very thankful that we got that rental because they're few and far between. Um, and now uh, we're looking at the buyback. Perhaps in the future we'll be able to buy another house that um, at least we're putting the money back straight back into real estate. Donna Walker's family are first in line for a buyback. All up, it's expected $700 million will be spent to support the thousands of people displaced because of the floods and to help them claw their lives back. It's expected 250 residents whose homes are in the highest risk areas will be offered a buyback by the end of April. Here's Donna Walker again. We're all waiting Again, waiting patiently uh, for information. Some have paperwork, some are, uh, have been told there will be paperwork. Uh, but I do see all over uh, Facebook uh, the, um, the group sites and things that um, people are wanting and praying for that paperwork, and we have it. So I want to put as much effort into uh, showing the... Um, the a government, I guess, uh, what our house is worth. Uh, so um, we will get, you know, a good buyback price, hopefully. Lismore resident Donna Walker, who's chatting to my colleague Bronwyn Herbert. Now she's in the process of filling out the paperwork for her buyback offer. Member for Lismore, Janelle Safin, is all too aware of the issues faced by people in the Lismore community. Her home was also badly affected by the floods. Janelle Safin, how, for those not living in Lismore, it, it, it seems kind of quite bewildering that people could still be in this situation a year on. How has that come to pass? There's been, like Sydney, do not feel our urgency. We, like our lives and communities were forever changed on the night of the 28th of February. It was like an inland tsunami that came through our towns and our uh, residential areas and 
you know, it created an internally displaced population. I mean, that's unheard of really in Australia. And I say it like this because it's hard to communicate it. Particularly when people hear the word Lismore, they think, oh yeah, it always floods up there. It was another flood. This was not another flood. This was like a cyclone Tracy, you know, hitting Darwin. Mm. This is what it's done to our community. But look, we're reclaiming, rebuilding, but we have to reimagine our lives for people who are waiting for the buyback or whether they'll have an offer of a house raise or you know what they call retrofitting to make it more flood resilient the sooner they know the better a lot of people will wait patiently as they do but feeling quite insecure and for a lot of people feeling unsafe Janelle, though, Donna made reference there several times to the paperwork and it sounds like people mm-hmm. are really bogged down in this paperwork. What's that all about? The Well, once, look, with paperwork, it's once they're, they're registered, okay? The registration was the easy part. Once they're registered and someone reaches out to them, they get their case manager, someone assesses, and they're assessing at the pre-flood value. I made sure of that. That was one thing I could secure with the Premier saying it had to be pre-flood value, not post-flood. You can imagine what that would mean. Mm. And they have two assessors doing it. And um, once they're made an offer, they have 30 days to say yes or no. That can be extended. And then they can stay there for quite a while while they rebuild. But look, I just wish that we could have more people working on it. And again, I come back to, like Dana, appreciating the things we got, but no sense of urgency. Like the New South Wales government has to feel our sense of urgency, has to revisit, has to relook at us and say, what else can we do right now as we approach this one year anniversary? Greg Flory has lived in Lismore for 40 years and this is what he had mm-hmm. to say to our reporter, Bronwyn Herbert. Let's have a listen. Uh, well, I could say it in a bad way, but no, I'm just peeved, really peeved, because there's no communication between the Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation, uh, who's in charge of the buyback, evidently, and uh, you never get a call from the Disaster Relief Grant people or Resilience. They, They never call. Do you feel forgotten? Do you feel frustrated? Definitely forgotten and frustrated. Uh, about all things because going on it's 12 months anniversary now so something should be done before now Greg's obviously really frustrated there Janelle is that a common feeling? It is a common feeling and I've been very public here that the NRCC, the you know Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation, while they might be doing some good things, their communications are appalling, absolutely appalling and it has to change. And I've said they should be let off the leash from the Department of Regional New South Wales. And remember it comes under the Deputy Premier. I said they've got to be let off the leash. Just talk with people, tell them what the challenges are, talk with them, walk with them because they were set up for us. They weren't set up for the Department of Regional New South Wales or the Deputy Premier. They're ours. Greg talked about um, that he was ready to walk away. Do you Mm -hmm. expect that a lot of people will rebuild or purchase elsewhere, which was what Mrs Walker was saying she was going to do? Or will there be a mass exodus of people if, if this kind of carries on for long periods of time? 
Well, we've already had an exodus of people because they've had to relocate in other places and some people will walk away, but most of them will, uh, you know, take the offer of a buyback or house raising and a lot of them want to relocate their property, their houses. So they're also waiting for the NRRC to um, roll out the Resilient Lands Program. They've got $100 million, that's state money, and again, I appreciate it, to... Um, acquire land and some people want to relocate or build there and I'm saying well hurry up with that as well so we know what's going on with it. We've got 300 expression of interest they've got already. Before I let you go how many people like Greg are living in makeshift accommodation? Mm -hmm. Now like you said 28th of February is the year anniversary how many would be in his Mm -hmm. situation? We don't know. Very difficult to get figures, but I do know there's probably about 400 people still displaced from home. Some people are in makeshift and the makeshift is the shell of a house or underneath their house, or some of them do have a caravan on their property. So it's a real mixture, um, a real mixture. And look, I, I just... I get frustrated too, but my job is each and every day to go to bat and say, feel our sense of urgency in New South Wales government. You know, we need more. Member for Lismore, Janelle Safin, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Early childhood educators say their industry is in crisis due to a mass exodus of staff. Demand for childcare and wait lists for regional centres are on the rise, but local centres can't fill the positions. Now the Union for Early Childhood is calling on the federal government to fund a 25% wage rise for educators. Educators say if they don't, there'll be no childcare sector left. Bendigo reporter Shannon Schubert filed this report. Part of Sarah Marsh's morning routine is grinding coffee beans to fill her reusable coffee pods. It's a sustainable and thrifty creation to save her spending money on takeaway coffees. Sarah's worked as an educator in New South Wales for 10 years and still earns the minimum wage. She's struggling with the rising cost of living. I find it really hard to pay my bills. With the increase of utilities, with housing going up, I got my qualifications and I'm still paid the minimum wage. I have to return and own cans in order to pay my bills. I have to count every cent in my budget in order to pay my bills, and it's hard. Bendigo educator Lisa Lansdowne is also hoping a pay rise comes soon. So we want the federal government to put in this year's budget for a 25% increase in wages for early childhood education. Hopefully, if that gets pushed through, we can keep continuing to work with the government and industries and keep our wages you know, above the cost of living. It's really hard for some people at the moment, and that's why people are leaving the sector, because they can make money elsewhere for less work. She says if the federal government doesn't step in, the sector will crumble. She says it's already in crisis mode with crazy demand for centres that can't find staff. We are constantly recruiting. We have about five jobs advertised here, but in Bendigo in general, it's probably about 10 to 15 jobs advertised. A pay rise isn't going to fix it. I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done 
but a pay rise is going to keep those valuable educators here and not looking elsewhere. We have tours coming through the door um, with children that haven't even been born yet and they have been told by other people you need to get in really early. We also have our existing families that want to pick up a day because they're going back to work especially with the cost of living they need to work more and it makes it really hard for us not to be able to accommodate their needs. Professor Karen Thorpe from the University of Queensland has spent years researching the early childhood sector. She says in remote areas, 50% of workers leave after 12 months. In the city, that figure is 35%. When we asked educators, what do you intend to do in the next 12 months? Do you intend to leave the sector or your centre? About one in five would say, yes, they're going to go. But when we did follow-up, it was about a third or just over a third, 35% that were leaving. And when we go to more remote areas, it's about half, 50% are leaving, which is a really high amount in any industry, but particularly when you think about what those early educators do in terms of relationships with children. She says it's crucial for children's development that there is continuity at childcare. What we find is the emotional environment is the most important one. If you've got an emotional environment that's the most important thing for children's learning and that gets disrupted by turnover, then you're damaging those really early learning things about regulating your behaviour, feeling safe that make a difference to learning. For 27-year-old Sarah Marsh, she now has to decide between living the life she wants and the job she loves. She wants to start a family, but as the primary income earner in her household, she can't afford it. thought quite a few times about leaving. Why should I leave an industry that I've loved, that I've done for over 10 years, that I've worked really hard to obtain a qualification in? And it's a shame that there are there is other industries that are unqualified for and earn more than what I do, like factory work, like barista work, like hospitality It's a shame that I have to think about leaving in order to earn more, but then that doesn't fix the crisis that is in the early childhood sector. I'm a young woman in my late 20s and, you know, I look after everyone else's children and I'd love to start my own family and I can't afford to have my own. Child care worker Sarah March speaking to our reporter Shannon Schubert in Bendigo. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Indigenous ranger groups from across northern Australia have travelled to Darwin this week to talk fire. Ranger groups are at the forefront of protecting remote parts of the country through early season burning, a method that also allows them to earn carbon credits. Matt Brown spoke to Arzania Malay, one of the first females to become a ranger in her region of the Kimberley, and asked how she got involved. Women's only started in 2018. Which is wonderful. Tell us about some of the work that that you and your other female rangers are doing. We go out, we put out cameras for mammals, first threatened species. We do marine work, we pick up rubbish, we do fire. We get involved with a lot of things with the boys. We always, with the boys working. We're talking about some very remote country aren't we? You're, you're sort of operating in an area of the Kimberley that is not just remote, but there's so many islands involved as well, yeah? Yeah, it's very remote. To get to our country, to our area, we, we can't just jump in a car and drive there. We have to jump in a boat or a plane to, you know, to get there. Yeah, it's very hard. We're at a fire forum, and as part of your presentation today, 
you spoke about work that you're starting to do in terms of fire management on some of these remote islands. Can you tell us about that and the benefits that you're seeing? Yes. Well, this year we just started, or last year we just started to burn on most of our, our summer by island. In Dumpy country, we own about 600 islands. So we just main aiming all the bigger islands and the ones with cultural sites, you know, like for us to protect again, you know, not only mammals, our cultural site too. We and it's making a difference? Yeah, it's making a difference a lot as the ra- since the ranger project, you know. And, and through that wonderful work, not only are you protecting country, but are you able to earn carbon credits from that work? Yes, through our fire, we, we earn carbon credits, and that's how we can... Money can go back into our ranger to buy stuff, you know, like to, to get out on country, you know. Help pay for the fuel. Help I reckon fuel, that would be a huge yeah. bill for you guys. Huge bill. Um, also here is Daphne, who is, uh, is part of the Women's Ranger Group there at Danby. Uh, tell us about how you got involved, Daphne. Um, hello, good afternoon. My name is Daphne Gilby. Um, I became a ranger to protect my, my area. We grew up from a very strong family. Our, our grandparents didn't have the boys and, and that's where we come in today. We speak for them. We go to the places that they used to talk about. We protect those areas with everything we can. What do you love about the job? I love that I'm a part of it. My connection to the country is very special. And I don't know how to explain it, but I'm a part of that area. And that area is a part of me. Daphne Gilby and Ozarnia Malay from the Danby Ranger Group in the Kimberley speaking to Matt Brown at the Savannah Fire Forum being held in Darwin at the moment. ABC Australia Wide. I think it's wonderful. I think everyone should come and see it. On ABC Radio. It's a common misconception that hemp and marijuana are one and the same. Hemp doesn't get you high and you make stuff out of it. So the Tasmanian hemp industry was furious when it was banned from advertising on social media because it was thought it was selling something illegal. Erin Cooper-Douglas has the story. Hemp producer Andy Lucas loves what she does and loves sharing it with others. So organising an annual Community Information Day is a highlight on her professional calendar. But this year, it's been a massive headache. Highly irritated, I think, would be an understatement. As head of Tasmania's Hemp Association, she's been piecing the event together, but ran into trouble trying to market it on social media. Facebook have actually disabled our ability to pay for advertising for the event. The site had rejected a series of ads on the basis that they were selling an illegal product or service. It also wouldn't let them dispute or appeal the decision, leaving them stuck just weeks out from the event. She said Facebook seemed to have precisely the sort of misinformed attitudes the Education Day is designed to combat. It's a plant that is used by humans to make food, for fibre. It's sold in the supermarkets. People eat it in their smoothies and their muesli. They build houses out of it. They wear T-shirts made out of hemp. It's clearly not a drug product. So they have completely banned your ability to advertise an event because they think you're selling illicit drugs, essentially. 
That's literally it. And it sounds so ludicrous that you wouldn't actually think that could possibly be true. It's had a huge impact on ticket sales. It has literally cut our ticket sales, I'd say, by about 70%. It's been as noticeable as that. After the ABC contacted Facebook's parent company, Meta, it reinstated the association's ability to buy ads. A spokesperson for the company said the account was disabled because several ads were incorrectly tagged as violating their policies. They said their policy allows ads that educate, advocate or give public service announcements related to hemp and hemp products, provided they don't offer anything prohibited for sale. Andy says while she's grateful the ban has been reversed for the association, it happens all the time for other hemp producers, nationally and internationally. There's hemp companies who are making products that are completely legal to sell in the country and in the state that they're in, yet they're not able to tell people about their product. So it's really holding our industry back and it's just something that needs to be resolved. Rob King is the chief executive of marketing firm King Thing. He's been working with the Tasmanian Hemp Association in the advertising and says Facebook's algorithm is far from perfect, but it's not the only one with problems. There's a few other clients that have, for instance, clothing that might have hemp as part of the garment. And so yeah, if we're trying to push that product through some of Google products, they will get flagged because the word hemp is used. It definitely has prevented some items being promoted through Google. He said while social media is a massive part of the marketing strategies he provides, hemp producers might need to consider whether it's worth the hassle. We can try and think of clever ways to get around um, the algorithm and any kind of ban that's been put in place. But ultimately, um, it's, it's probably not worth the effort of trying to, to overcome it. Aaron Cooper-Douglas with that story. Yesterday, we heard a very unusual story from the northern edge of the Tanami in the Northern Territory. Locals in the remote outback community of Lajamanu saw fish raining from the sky. Lajamanu local and Central Desert Councillor and Andrew Johnson Japananka was there and had this to say. We've seen big storm heading up to my community and I, and I with this thought, I just was it was just a rain, but it wasn't a rain. It was also a fish coming across to our community. And when when the rain would start falling, we we seen fish falling down as well. And and this is not the first time it happened in our community. It happened few times. I don't know why. Now, Andrew wasn't the only one questioning why it was raining fish. Australia-wide listener Brandt got in contact and asked me to clarify why this actually happens. My colleague Alex Barwick spoke with Jeff Johnson, who's an ichthyologist, that's a fish expert, from the Queensland Museum. Rains of fishes are real, a real thing. When it happens, you have fish confined in uh, outback watercourses and billabongs and so on, and you have a, a strong whirly wind or a small tornado it picks up water from these water courses, fish um, in amongst that, and it'll dump it um, sometimes miles and miles away in the most unusual places, even on top of people's roofs. We've seen a couple of photos. I've shared them with you. Can you identify what these fish are that are in Lajamanu? Yes, well, they're spangled perch or spangled grunter. They're an extremely common fish right throughout the northern half of Australia and down through the Murray-Darling. And are they often fish that fall from the sky? Uh, well, no, they're not. They're often confined to um, billabongs and small water holes for years on end. And uh, then when you get a big wet, as soon as they have the opportunity, they're out of there. And uh, they want to disperse themselves as widely as possible and breed in other water holes. You- you'll find them going up small temporary gullies and even up wheel tracks. They'll follow wheel tracks for miles and miles and miles. These uh, wheel tracks and small water courses dry up and they're left floundering in the middle of nowhere. 
So you're saying that there is a possibility that sometimes it might appear as though fish have fallen from the sky, but actually a big rain has brought them out by other means. Yes, they're a relatively um, large fish. They're not able to be drawn up out of the water and, and held up in the sky for very long, whereas actual rains of fishes normally involve species like uh, Australian rainbow fishes. We did hear from a local, though. He says that he you know, he heard them thumping on the roof. And, of course, we know it's happened in large Manu before. Is it possible for the spangled perch, the spangled grunter, to, on occasion, fall from the sky? Well, it is, and that, well, if they've landed on the roof, well, um, uh, clearly that's what has happened. Uh, occasionally, spangled perch are taken up, particularly small ones. They have the same capacity to be moved around by these little tornadoes and whirlywinds that you get out in the west. Isn't that absolutely fascinating? Ichthyologist Jeff Johnson explaining why fish rained from the sky in the Tanami Desert on the weekend. And thanks again to Brant for following up on this story. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.